a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. It always sounds better in Italian, right? The romance, the charm, the history and of course, the food. Giovanni Pilu owns and runs, along with his wife Marilyn, one of Australia's finest restaurants with, let's face it, one of Australia's best views. It's called Pilu at Freshwater and they've had that since 2004. Born in Sardinia, he says he was always destined to cook. From a small village, food was always shared, foraged and simply prepared. Everything from wild asparagus, fresh cheeses and, of course, wild game. He's a regular visitor back to Sardinia. Well, he was until things changed, thanks COVID. But he's a champion of all things Sardinian here in Australia. It was a great chat. So here is the very charismatic Giovanni Pilo. Giovanni, welcome to the podcast. I've been excited about this one. I haven't seen you for... A couple of years now, I think. So it's great to have you on. And the boy from Sardinia. Great to be here. No, I, don't know, I don't know if anyone has called me that before. The boy. I like the boy. Because you look young and healthy and fit and tanned. That's why. <laughs> so, we, you know, I was doing a bit of research last night and obviously we know you as a restaurateur in a long time now. You've been, you know, at Pilo at Freshwater for since when? Since 2004? 2004, coming up to nearly 17 years now. It's a solid stint. And actually, I, I think it was an interview that you did and they asked you, you know, what's the, the plan for the future? And this, you know, I'm just kind of, and you said, no, I'm pretty happy. I'm, I'm locked into the community. We're involved in lots of different things. And he goes, another, I think another 14, 15 years at the restaurant. So you've got some solid long-term plans there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, if, if a restaurant is your life, like for us, you know, it is our life. That's how we live it and breathe it. As you know, you know, restaurants are just our hobby. If you are in a place like Freshwater Beach and, you know, you're doing, you know, you're doing well and you are established and, you know, it lasted all these years, you just go, well, what else would I want to be like? You know, what would I want to go somewhere else and start all over again? Because starting a restaurant, no matter how good you are and experienced you are, it's a freaking, it's a nightmare, you know? You don't know what is gonna happen when the doors open so you know we extended the lease um i mean our plan was always 20 years you know and years go really fast so it's coming up to 20 years and we had the opportunity of you know um extending the lease and and we did for another 10 and then we'll see what happens you know like we're gonna get to 20 and then you know we uh, regroup again and you know we'll see what the kids now are both you know one is finished university did they work in the restaurant when they were younger or, you know? Uh, they, they still do, actually. Sofia works, you know, at the Barretto, um, a little bit, and, and the other place that we got, Aqua Fresca in the Diggers. She's very good. Martino, now, obviously, he works five days a week uh, in an office because, you know, he decided to, uh, he wanted to be a landscape architect. But he still does, like, once a week at the restaurant. But because I never got pushed to do what I love doing, right? So I changed my career. When I was 17, I was starting to be a draftsman and I freaking couldn't click. I just didn't like it at all. I was just following, you know, the, 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 the pattern, you know, oh, you must do this and you must do that. And when I started working in hospitality, when I was a lot younger, just like during the summer break, I knew that I loved it so much. And that's when, you know, my parents say, look, that's what you love do why not you know i always say that to my kids you know do whatever you want to do but love it because otherwise it's going to be freaking hard you know no matter what it is so you know that that idea of 
knowing that you're from Sardinia and also knowing that you are a champion for kind of regional Italian food, I want you to drag us back there, paint a picture mm. for us, you know? Well, in actual fact, I mean, when, you know, when we started Acala Luna, which was a first small restaurant, for me it was a no-brainer because that's what I knew. And back then I remember that, you know, it was almost like, it was like trendy to go, oh, you know, food from one region only. No one is really doing it. Everyone is doing, you know, like generic Italian done well. And there were always, there was only like, you know, a couple of restaurants, I think that I can remember that they were doing a similar thing to what we were doing, like Boricordo or Lucio's, you know, those institutional places that, but like literally there was like two or three of them. And for me it was, that's all I knew, you know, for me, Sardinia food, it was, you know, that's, especially if you, being an island and such a small island, you know, your knowledge is not as broad as if you live maybe in the mainland and you travel a little bit more and you move around, you know, so you are a little bit more in a way restricted to know literally what is growing around the area where you live and, you know, what cooking and, and all the, you know, all the different dishes that they created by, you know, relatives and another little village next door and all that kind of stuff, you know? So that's what we wanted to always do. And, and in Australia, in all honesty, look, it's not that difficult to do that because you have access to so much good produce. So I think, you know, no matter where you are in this country, you can reproduce good regional cooking, no matter where you come from, because Australia has got so much to offer. So, you know, that's all we did. And it was, in a way easy because, you know, we're, we're not trying to reinvent anything. I'm going, you know what? I'm from Sardinia. Let's do Sardinian cuisine. A couple of things, obviously, that you can replace, like, you know, the fregola, the panna carazao, you know, the botarga, that then, you know, I started making my own botarga because, you know, like all that kind of stuff, like, you know, it was just, like I said, not even as difficult to do Sardinian cuisine. And, you know, and then we exposed then Sardinia to, a lot of Australians that, you know. I was just going to drag you back into that and say, well, explain that, you know, because there'd be people that are listening going, hang on a minute, what is Fregola and what is, you know, Botaga? And I know people are more familiar with it now, but it's still people like you have bought that into the marketplace. You know, we, we've, gone, we've all gone to our speciality shops and going, excuse me, can we get this? So, so what are those things and how important are they to you, for example? Because it's such a, because it's an island, you know, and it was invaded by so many different cultures, the food of Sardinia is very diverse, I guess, from the rest of the mainland, because you have the influences from Catalans, the North Africans in the south of the island, being close to, you know, North Africa. So, you know, you get the fregola, which resembles a couscous, or, you know, the, bota, the botarga, which is a dried and salted fish, roy. So, you know, the Arabs did that. All that kind of stuff, you know, we got from, from you know, Sardinia being colonized and, um, when, when, I, when we started cooking with, you know, these different ingredients, people had no idea what this stuff was. Man. I remember in 97, 98, at Cala Luna, we used to put botarga. We had a glass board and we used to uh, do a simple spaghetti alla botarga, right? The biggest job was trying to explain to people what botarga was. <laughs> and trying to make it sound delicious. And try to make it sound as delicious as freaking carbonara <laughs> or pascaiola or something, you know? You know, and then people tried it and then, you know, and then, the, you know, they started then asking it back, you know, and that's what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to go, you know what, why don't you try it? I mean, like when, I remember when Beppe, you know, poor guy now, you know, he passed away, but he always told me the stories how, you know, he used to go, oh, you know, try 
these mussels or try this calamari or try this octopus. And people used to go, what? Calamari? That's bait. I use it as bait. <laughs> and then people used to come back and go, have you got any more of the calamari there? <laughs> and Botarga was almost like that. You know, like people used to come back and go, oh, you know, I really enjoyed that pasta with Botarga that you made. Is there any more? Like, you know, and that's how we slowly started. It was a lot of work. But a lot of fun. It's not just the the Italians that own that as well. I remember when I started working and I went to to London and we were using things like you know brown crabs from Cornwall or Welsh lamb and also things like langoustine, which were scampi, which used to be fished up in Scotland. But nobody in Scotland they used to throw them back in the water, the langoustine, because it used to they used to destroy the nets. So they were like that. They were like bait fish, and people hated them. And then they realised that the langoustine were more expensive or worth more than the fish that the cod that they were catching. Became became better fish. Unbelievable. It's like <laughs> swordfish. Yeah. Swordfish. Just that I remember they used to come from, you know, the fish market, Claudia's, and they used to bring a swordfish loin still on the bone. I remember he used to come into Calaluna on this thing on his shoulders, he used to dump it on the table and go, make me an offer. <laughs> like <laughs> how much do you want to pay? Because we got so much of this stuff, swordfish. And I just go, really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, people don't really understand it. And now, you know, you pay $40 a kilo for swordfish, you know, all this kind of stuff. So Botarga was, I mean, it was big for us because, you know, we, we were buying Sardinian Botarga, which I always believed was the best in the world. And then, you know, we discovered that Sardinian Botarga was made with Australian fish roll. And I went, really? Yeah, just like crazy. And I was always, you know, like saying to everyone, oh, you know, the Sardinian Botarga is the best. There is no better. And then when I find out about, you know, <laughs> the, the Sardinians were buying Australian raw, till now we buy, you know, the same raw from a fishery up in uh, Byron. And I've been, you know, I've been mullet fishing with them. And, you know, it's an amazing raw that, you know, they say it's one of the best in the world. Yeah. So is it from mullet is the road that you use? What, what is, what's the fish that they catch up there? Gray, gray mullet. Gray mullet, yeah. The males get separated from the uh, females and then the males get sold, just frozen, you know, to I think the Middle East or um, they love that kind of fish. The beautiful fish if you do it in, a, in the right way. And then the females, what happens is, you know, the uh, raw gets extracted from the head side because, you know, you got to take the head off because if you try to take it up from the belly and you make a cut, you can split the membrane and then all the eggs fall out. So then it comes up, yeah, comes up. They keep a little bit of the skin underneath, which is called the scallop, and then retains the eggs inside the sack. And then it gets simply salted and dried. And then you can do so much with it. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm excited by this and licking my lips. And Dave, the producer, is going, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> huh? so it's... Until, Dave, you come and try it and then you'll be addicted, I promise. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be right over. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So take us back to when you were a, a little boy because I was, I was laughing at it. Obviously, you did an interview at some point where you said you got your gun license and I'll put that in perspective. Like people are going, what? Got your gun license before you got your car license. What you meant by that was when you were growing up, it was all about foraging and collecting things and the neighbors cooking. I want to hear about that. Oh, look, you know, obviously coming from, you know, um, country, village, foraging and hunting, it was massive, you know. Still today, like two days ago, I spoke to my father for about 45 minutes about his hunting day on Sunday and how many boars they kill and how windy it was and how many got out. 
it's massive. It's such a big thing, you know, especially while boar hunting. So when I turned 18, I was able to get my um, license for the gun. And my father was, you know, so proud of it before <laughs> I got my driver's license. So I could then go, you know, hunting legally. <laughs> and that was amazing. Like, I, I loved it so much. And it was. So can you paint a picture of the landscape? I mean, where did you grow up in Sardinia? It was very rugged, you know, like Sardinia, especially the north part of the island, probably from the center to the south. That's where most produce gets grown in Sardinia because there's a massive flat, the Campidano flat is called. But the north part, it's very rocky, very um, bushy, and very, you know, very hard. And that's, the, you know, probably the prettiest part of the island, though it is. And, and I grew up in a small village, you know, there's only 300 people in the village, and it's a um, you know, it's a number of them around where I live. There is seven different villages, but they're all like three, four hundred people. So very small in the in the hills in the countryside, not far from the coast, only fifteen k's, but you know, far up on the hills. So you know, growing your own things. Obviously, everybody knows everybody. Um, you know, and then you know, doing those things like in winter, going hunting and foraging. I mean, I get still so jealous and excited when. Uh, my father sent that we, we Skype and he goes, look, I'm Porcini today, two crates of Porcini. Ovuli, have you heard of Ovuli? No, I haven't. Ovuli, it's a, it's a mushroom that I just, it, you know, I still salivate when I see them. So it looks like an egg, right? So it's red on the top, orange red, and then on the bottom it's got, you know, like a white part of it. It looks like, like a, a, a you know, an egg. Like a little frill. Yeah, and they are so good. And you eat them mostly raw. So all this stuff that I grew up with that I miss now if I'm, you know. And where do you find those? I mean, when, you, when you're scuffling around in yeah, the... Yeah, so you, you, you know your spot and no one tells you where the mushrooms are because as you know, they, you know, you can get them from one year to the next. And basically they grow in, the bu in this bush that it's called Corbezzolo, which is almost like very unique to Sardina, which is like a, a wild strawberry tree. And flowers in winter, and they make a honey that is slightly bitter. It's called miele di corbezzolo, bitter honey, which is very unique to Sardinia. So all underneath these bushes, you get this beautiful ovule, and then you get porcini because there is, you know, chestnuts and, and all. And, and lots of eucalyptus, like, you know, it's, yeah. So do you get a dish, for example, I mean, I, I don't know whether the seasons cross, but porcini, when, when do porcini come in? In the, in the spring? In the early spring? Is that right? I'm trying to remember. No, the, the porcini come at the end of summer, right? So you got the hot summer season, and then it starts to get into autumn, and then you, you know when you get those days where it's still warm, and but it starts raining, and then it's a bit humid, damp, that's when you start getting the mushrooms. It gets really, really exciting. September, October, November. Well, you know, truffles come at the time, the good ones, the winter truffles. Um, and all the mushrooms, and then the hunting season kicks on in September, and it runs until about the end of February. So, you know, it's all what happens, and the locals get really involved with all this stuff. I even get, you know, as you're saying it, you know, my holidays to Italy, and they're not as frequent as the ones to France, but the sound of gunshot in, I normally go September, October, and you go, oh, they've started, Yeah, you know, and they're out foraging, they're out hunting, and then, you know, wherever you go, little local restaurant, that you're going to get, get some good stuff, right? Partridge, yeah, quails, you know, like all the kind of stuff that you know. Um, it just, it's, it's great. It's exciting. Like for me, you know. Did you have a blessed childhood? I mean, just trying to, you know, picture this this family life, small village. Everybody knows everybody. I mean, you know, can you tell us about that? I mean, th times have changed a lot. You know, obviously they do. But 
the, sometimes, you know, like I think back and how, I think how good it was and simple it was like that we used to play, you know, football, soccer, you know, in the little square and all the oldies used to come out and watch us on a Sunday. It was the biggest game of the week, you know, or we used to go and watch the oldies playing cards in the bar and we used to sit around until we got a little bit older that we could play a game or two. That was what we did in the afternoon, like in summer, like things like that, you know, or, um, you know, go for a swim in a rock pool or, you know, go and steal cherries because they're in season now. And there is so many of them. And normally we've got a lot of cherries. They, they, <laughs> they're tight and they never give them away. So we used to go and steal them, you know, lunchtime when everyone is having a little rest. Um, <laughs> and then we have a, a swim in the afternoon, like, you know, in a little rock pool. And, and then where there are days. And then, you know, obviously we were, you went to the beach nearly every day and it's just so good. You know, times that I'm sure they'll never come again. Looking at looking at you, though, you must have been a cheeky lad. Did you ever get up to more mischief than stealing cherries? I wasn't that bad, you know, like, and I've got a friend, I've got a dear friend of mine that we grew up together and we were really, really close. And then, you know, as I was driving around and, you know, 18, 19, we kind of took different paths, you know, and I could have gone with him, but he ended up in jail for 11 years. And I... um lucky I took, you know, the other way, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't as crazy because, you know, it was tempting to do silly stuff when you're young like that and you get bored sometimes because, you know, let's be honest, look, in winter, if you live in such a tiny village in a small area where nothing really happens, you get bored and then you do stupid stuff. And uh, lucky I didn't go drawn to that. Why, why did you take a different path? Do you think whose, whose influence was it? Or is it something that's in your, your head? Gary, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that upbringing and education at home, it plays a massive part where you become and, you know, and not in sometimes maybe your profession or, you know, your professional life, but I think your mentality, your honesty and all that kind of stuff that then, you know, you get to a point where you're going to make a decision and you go, well, that's not what my parents have taught me. That's not what my father did. That's not what my grandfather did. And that always played in the back of my mind. So I think that helped me a lot and gone, no, that's too stupid. I'm not doing that. And thank God that that I went the other way, to be honest. Yeah. I think, you know, my, you know, in my life, I had two very close friends and we stuck together and it kept to us honest. And yet our broader group of friends, because we're from we're not the same island as you. We're, we're we're from a little place called Hailing Island, which is more like a suburb of Chichester and Portsmouth. It's certainly not as romantic and wonderful as Sardinia sounds. But um it used to and you know, maybe people from Hailing will go, no, but it, uh, because it was a summer destination, had a bit of a drug problem. And a few of my friends got really caught up in that. And really sadly over the years have passed away because of just what they got caught up in. And, you know, I've often asked myself how I ended up just taking a different road, but I reckon it was just the three of us that just stuck together and maybe had a different idea of, you know, how we should move forward, you know? I agree. Yeah, upbringing, company, education, all that kind of stuff, you know. Explain to us how you got to Australia, you know, because you came quite young, didn't you? Yeah, I came when I was 22 for the first time. And when I met Marilyn, she was traveling in Sardinia. And, you know, we went into this bar very casually for one last beer before we went home with a friend of mine. They literally forced the steering wheel. I was driving for one more beer. I think it was the luckiest turn of my life, to be honest, you know, just for one more drink and we walked into this club and Marilyn was there and we met, um, you know, and it was, it was crazy. Like, you know, the way that we met. Oh, so you came to Australia for love. (laughs) 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> back, back then I did. And, uh, you know, it's funny because she spoke very, like broken Italian because, you know, she's got Italian background and I didn't speak one single word of English. So it was, you know, an interesting uh, couple of weeks when we met. And, you know, then Marilyn, after six months spending time together in Sardinia, you know, she came back. And then, you know, again, that's how life is. You know, I had to make a decision because, you know, we talk to each other every day over phone calls. And I remember, you know, the phone booths, right? And in Italy, you know, I remember there was the scatti, which is the numbers that they come down as the minutes go by and you're talking. And every number, it's 200 lira back then. It was like $2, right? And I remember watching this bloody thing, you know, I'm on the phone. It's like tick, 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 tick. Then I'm adding it up and I'm just going... <laughs> I'm running out of money here. So we spoke to each other on the phone for a couple of months. And then, you know, you had to make a call and go, oh, she's in Australia. She's not coming back soon to Italy. It took me forever to get my head around how far away this country was. Because, you know, coming from such a small community and I wasn't, you know, like a genius at school. And I'm thinking, I remember I used to think, it takes nine hours on the ferry to go from Sardinia to Italy overnight and then 22-hour flight to get to Australia. I'm just going, surely not. It can't be. <laughs> you know, like, where the hell is this place? And then, you know, like, one day I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. And then, you know, I had this money aside where I wanted to buy either the motorbike of my dream or buy a ticket to come to Australia. And again, I went... Do I go left or do I go right? And then, you know, lucky that I, 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 you know, I, came, I came to Australia and I was welcomed as a, as a friend in Maryland's house, but I felt like I was already a son, you know, back then. You know, when I walked in that day, you know, they lived in Terry Hills and there was such a really positive impact for me and I loved it from minute one. And I think, you know, I think Australia has got this thing that it's almost like you get like a bug, you know, they because we did a little bit of backs and forwards to start with, because Italy back then was great. You know, everyone was making money. You know, it was the lira, it was in the euro. There was work around, beautiful country. So we tried to go back. And then it wasn't really clicking for Marilyn because, you know, she went to uni, she wasn't finding a good job. So we said, you know what? Why don't we go back to Australia? I'll always find a job as a chef. Uh, the English, look, I'll, I'll start studying. I'm sure I'll learn English. Because, I, you know, I always wanted to learn English because I did French at school, but I loved languages, different languages. So that's what we did. You know, we came back after the second attempt and then, um, you know, it was like never looked back. The first two or three years, in all honesty, it wasn't easy. It wasn't a walk in the park because, you know, you come, first of all, you come as a tourist and it's great. You're having fun and, you know, you just, you don't care about anything. And then the second time was more like, well, we're going to move there. So now you've got to find a job. You're going to start, you know, your life in this new country where, you know, it wasn't because you're not five years old, you're 23 years old and you've got to learn, you know, especially to speak and communicate with people. And that was quite challenging. But, you know, I, I ran into, I went to TAFE and not because, you know, I wanted to learn more the cooking side, but, but I think that, you know, to learn English, I had to break away from the Italian communities that I was playing soccer with. And, you know, I never learned a word of English. And then when... You know, I decided to go to TAFE in Brookville. I remember that back then, you know, my uh, great teacher, Peter Bansley, and still my, you know, one of my best friends, is now even semi-retired, he said, it was a three-way conversation, and he said to Marilyn, don't worry, 
this guy, you know, we'll take care of him. We'll help him out. You'll do well. And I was, you know, so well looked after. And I think Taif, you know, really gave me such a great opportunity because, you know, the kitchen side of it, it wasn't even the difficult, but the theory side and the communication side of it, that's when I needed help. And they really did help me a lot. So, you know, things, you know, started clicking and, you know, I was loving it more and more and, you know, and slowly you start embedding, you know, a new culture, a new country. And, you know, I, I met great people and Marilyn's family, you know, like never looked back. It sounds like you traded, you know, small community for a, a bigger one, a very different one, but it's nice that you, you know, that's part of feeling like you belong somewhere and that you, you fit. I never, I never felt, never felt unwelcomed ever. You know, like I felt always comfortable with, you know, first of all, like I said, you know, with Marilyn's family and their Marilyn's friends and then, you know, TAFE. I mean, I was literally the only, almost back then, this is 93, 94, almost the only non-Australian at TAFE. And back then people used to go to TAFE. There was 25 in a class and, you know, two hour theory lesson. I used to sit in this room and literally understand nothing. And Peter used to call Marilyn and go through the lesson with her in broad lines, and then Marilyn used to translate it back to me in Italian. So she did TAFE as well with you. <laughs> <laughs> she was a student of the year. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was all these things that, you know, helped me to, you know, like um, love Australia more and more, you know, like things were always positive and I was seen to always find someone that, you know, helped me and it was great. And then, you know, my old boss, Peter, I went to look for a job at Piemonte back then and he said, oh, you know, I'll give you a job, but the only two that speak Italian here, it's me and you and the chef, Mimmo, a Sicilian guy, and all the others are, you know, the Australians. And I had to work back then on a lot of pastry with a Canadian. It wasn't easy, but he gave me a job, helped me out. And I was there for four years then. And, you know, he wouldn't let me go then. So, you know, all these things helped me to go, how good is this? Like, you know, yeah. It's a, it's a big change. It's a, it's a massive change in your life, but you've made Australia home. How do you, how do you reconnect? Because obviously you travel, well, prior to all this COVID, you know, and, and lack of travel, which we never imagined, you were, you were going back quite regularly. I was kind of living my travels vicariously through your Instagram and all these wonderful trips. How do you find it when you go home? Oh, uh, look, and, and I always say that, how, uh, you know, th this is another lucky thing because, I think if we were living in Sardinia, we probably wouldn't be able to come back to Australia every year or every second year because, you know, I think even financially because it's not an easy trip, as you know, you know, it's not, you know, like easy to go to Europe once a year and all that. But we're lucky enough that we can go back, if not every year, every second year. The hardest thing obviously was, you know, leaving your family and your parents, friends, obviously, you know, you, when you see each other, you reconnect straight away. That doesn't matter, but especially in your mom, you know, your mother was always, oh, you know, why didn't you come back? And then when my mom started coming to Australia and she comes every year until last year, you know, she couldn't come anymore. She loved it so much as well to go, you know, wow, how good is this? You know, I want to come to Australia more often. So I didn't really then miss Sardinia as much as I thought I was going to miss. But still, your, your roots and your blood, you know, like wants to drag you back. And I never enjoyed Sardinia like when I moved to Australia because when I go back now, it's like, wow, I'm not working. I'm relaxing. I'm traveling around the island. I'm discovering all these things that I didn't even know existed. 
So we try to go back once a year, once every second year. I mean, my dream one day is, you know, if we retired, I don't know when, but, you know, <laughs> to have a small house on the coast with, a, with, a, with an inflatable boat, with a Zodiac that I can go and, you know, into, you know, around the base and spend, you know, three months a year there because, you know, it is great. But, you know, yeah, I mean, living here and going back to Sardinia on holidays, it's great. But then we travel, you know. Well, I was actually, when I was looking at some videos and bits and pieces, I picked up your book and I was reading through some recipes and I thought, you know, I wonder in that kind of rediscovery of Sardinia, you know, having come to Australia and learned, you know, working in Italian restaurants and your own restaurants here, that when you went maybe back for the first proper time where you really reconnected with it, what recipes were surprises that you just went, how come I never knew this one? I mean, this, the food of Sardinia is quite simple and... You know, it's not complicated. It's very, like, so simple. But when we, especially when we, when we went back with, um, you know, Roberta and Franz back then to, uh, you know, to have a look at Sardinia, and we were studying about, you know, for the book, I, I discovered things that, you know, like, I never knew even existed. And this is what gives you an idea of, you know, an island is so diverse. Like, you know, I remember there was this dish that we were uh, trialing and it was, you know, zuppa galurese, right? Now this is like a bread, savory bread pudding, which is, you know, like stock bread, style bread, stock cheese and mint, and then you bake it, you know? And I thought I could knock up a pretty good zuppa galurese. The galura region, it's the area where I live, right? Which is an area, you know, like fairly broad in the top uh, part of the island. And I thought that my aunties made a great zuppa galurese and so did I. So we went to this place where it was, Arzakena, it's in the heart of Galura, and they are the Zuppa Galurese icons. And I remember trialing this dish, and, you know, we did this, uh, and I did it, you know, the way that, you know, my aunties taught me to do it, you know, the, the lamb stock, the mint, uh, the pecorino, which is never missing in a Sardinian pantry, and then the bread that it was never thrown away. That was the idea, you know, style bread, you soak it, and you bring it back and you bake it. And I made it in these ladies and I was so proud. It came out really good and it was all golden. <laughs> and I got absolutely annihilated <laughs> because they're going, what is this stuff? You can't come here and, you know, change our dish. And I'm just going, wow, you know, what, what did I do? Oh, you know, the stock, you got to put some tomato. Why is it so pile and this and then, and you can't put this and you got to put a little bit of parsley with the mint. And so anyway, you know, within 10K radius, there was the same dish that it was different and I wasn't doing it right. So, you know, that's what I love discovering that there was all these things, but not so many new dishes, but variations of a dish, you know, that everyone did it in a bit of a different way. Because there is also, I mean, one of the biggest things in, the, in Sardinia is, you know, the dialects that we speak. Like we speak over 100 different dialects. There is 1.7 million people in the island. It's crazy. So, you know... You can imagine then how many different things people do and how many, the same thing, how many different ways of doing something there is. And the, and the cuisine, obviously, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you, you can uh, go, oh, you know, he comes from this area or that, he, you know, he comes from that area because of, you know, the, the, you know, the different. The different- but, but question, when you, when you tasted their, that dish, but when they made it, could you truly taste the difference or was it more kind of, you know? Um, to be honest, not really. <laughs> it's, it's almost like 
a proud thing, you know, or, you know, it's, it's, it's yours and you get used to it. You, exactly. Um, like I said, I think, you know, I can do a pretty good Zupagalurez and it's really great, but you know, they did a couple of different things and you can't, you can't do it. You can't change it because people get really offended, really upset about, oh, you know, but we're the ones that made it first and everyone is the first one. Um, and, and the wines, I mean, the wine, that's another thing that blew my mind. And there is a chapter you know, we'll talk a little bit about the wines of Sardinia, which a lot of people, I think a lot of people didn't even know that Sardinia made any wines, never mind, you know, making great wines. You know, Vermentino, Canonau, Bovale Sardo, there is some natives, you know, grapes, that we make some amazing wine. And I, I didn't know much about wine. I mean, I knew about homemade wine that it wasn't, sometimes it was freaking crazy, undrinkable, what my, my father and my grandfather made, and you had to drink that. But now, you know, I discovered, you know, like more and more that there is some incredible wines, like, you know, obviously the newer generation, you know, they realize that, you know, they had the product, all they had to do is, you know, fine tune it a bit, market it. And, you know, now there is some, you know, amazing wines coming out of Sardinia. And that's something that I discovered that I didn't even know about. I, did, I had no idea. I knew Canonau red, Vermentino white. And then there is... Another 20 different varietals, obviously the area, the landscape, you know, growing different grapes, doing it in a different way. You know, again, Vermentino is done, you know, in so many different ways and tastes different because, you know, the landscape changes and, and, and the methods of, you know, sparkling, Torbato, which is a beautiful sparkling Sardinia, all that kind of stuff. And you've been instrumental in bringing those out to, to the restaurant as well, right? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we won back then, you know, we got recognized. I mean, we need, you know, doesn't matter, doesn't mean anything. But recognized as, you know, probably one of the only restaurants back then that he had the most wines from one region of Italy of any other restaurant. So we had Lara Caraturo back then, you know, an incredible sommelier. She helped us building this, you know, amazing wine list. It took us 10 years to, you know, focus nearly only on Italian wines, but having a massive exposure on, you know, the Sardinia wines because the experience then was complete. You know, we believed that we're going, oh, you know what? We're cooking Sardinian food, let's match it with Sardinian wines. And now, again, you know, that's another thing that people come and go, you know, what can we drink from Sardinia? Yeah, what can I drink? Yeah, well, that's part of the experience. The beer. Yeah, the experience, you know, and the Sardinian beer, like Nusa, that no one knew about. Now it's one of the most popular beers, you know, almost like in Sydney, every, every restaurant has got Ignusa. As, as much as... People know Peroni, now they know Ikenuza, you know, so it's... Must make, make you very proud. And I, look, I love the idea that, you know, when you talk about the restaurant being your home, you know, that it's an expression of your home. And people, that's the first thing you do, right? You know, you want to be told, I don't like even looking at a menu. You know, I go, what, are, what do you want me to eat? You know, I just want to eat whatever anybody... I've got, I have no allergies that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy when people say to us, can you just cook for us and, you know, don't worry about we eat anything. That's really easy. Yeah. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. I drag you right up to the present day, what are your favourites right now that, that you've got on the, the menu or on the wine list that you love to put together? Look, on the menu at the moment, we, 
we're focusing a little bit more on seafood because it is summer. So we do a little bit more seafood in summer and maybe a, a few more meat dishes in winter. Um, but, you know, we got like, and we had to put it back because it was such a great dish. There is a, there is a dish that in Aiguero, which is a tiny small town in the west, past, uh, west north part of the island, that they call the Little Barcelona because it's such a big, strong Catalan influence in the area of, you know, in that uh, area of the island. And they make this dish with um, lobster, right? And it's called Aragosta la Catalana, which is Catalan-style lobster. And it's literally, you know, as simple as boiling the lobster, um, you know, for how, like, however long, depends how, how big it is, and then pick the meat out, and then you make a salad with pickled onions, tomatoes, um, some herbs, celery. So it's like a salad, and then you, you know, put the lobster meat through it, you know, you cut it into small chunks, and then, you know, you just serve it back in the shell, and it's such a great way of eating lobster away from, you know, all the other traditional ways, which I think, you know, sometimes it's crazy what they do with it. And now at the moment we have Western Australian marrons. For me, that dish. Yeah, that's a real lobster in my mind. <laughs> that is better than lobster. For me, it's the best crustacean in Australia. Like we get them live and, you know, we steam them and then we make this dish out of it that we added on the menu and took it off. And then now we're putting it back. I think maybe even today it comes on because people just could not get enough of it and they kept asking back. So we- The difference for me always is that, you know, when I first came to Australia and you eat lobster, which is crayfish, because the water's, you know, the Pacific, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're, they're clean, it's different water. And so the taste, I would always said, you know, I'd rather have good prawns, you know, but then when you taste a marron, because it's so sweet, it reminds you of those, you know, that classic kind of European lobster. And that's what I mean. For me, it's the closest like, flavor-wise that you can get to the European lobster, or the Sardinian, for me anyway, which, you know, I don't get with other crustacean or sometimes even fish, you know, because you're right. I mean, I went to, you know, I was lucky enough to go to South Australia and I visited, you know, a number of uh, farms, including, you know, the mussel farm. I went to uh, Spring Bay. <sighs> Man. The mussels of Olbia, where I come from, when you open the pot, it's an explosion of, you know, the smell and the flavor. And they, and they live in crazy waters compared to Australia, like dirty, near the port. But that is what sometimes, you know, because they are filters and they filter all these waters and then the flavor just intensifies. Where down in Tasmania, where the mussels were um, found, you could see the bottom at 20 meters of like Which is beautiful, but it expresses itself in what you're eating, right? I've always been, and you are the same, you're a champion of Australian uh, food and you buy into the same, uh, I'm trying to think the pitch, where Australian produce is incredible, it's the best in the world and blah, blah, blah. But, the, you know, there's a reality that, yeah, you know what, you're never going to compete with the French with cheese, for example. And we'd make some good ones, but... There's, there's a reality. And I, I, I've kind of, as I've got older, I've gone, yeah, we're, we're bloody amazing. We've got some incredible stuff, but this thing is unbeatable. So that kind of, that kind of association, that memory is important. The quality, the, the variety, the abundance, it's all here. It's those flavors that you grew up with that you go, oh, man, I can't really... I can't get the same flavor here, you know. We make- There's a bit of time and place, though, yeah, right? Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, Congole... You know, we went, because we do a few cooking tours, you know, with Alessandro sometimes, and we went to Venice that time, I remember. 
and we had a group of Australians and we went to get, you know, the little tiny clams, you know, from the Laguna Venice. You can imagine how polluted it is, right? So we got little clams and because we could speak the language, we would say to the guy at the Rialto markets, listen, man, not the farmed ones, give us the wild ones. We were making pasta for the group, you know, like blah, blah, blah. So we made the pasta that night and all the Aussies are going, when we come back to Australia, you're going to make us this dish. And it's like impossible. I cannot make it. But the flavor said, yeah, yeah, I know you can't. But you know what? And the more I've traveled over the years, I I celebrate that. I love that because, you know, if you could reproduce everything the same, it would just take the romance and the idea and the excitement away from where you go, you know? Like I I love, um, you know, I'm a massive Chardonnay fan and people go, why don't you drink? French Chardonnays. You know, I go to a restaurant and they say, oh, I've got a great, you know, Chablis Premier Grill. I go, Premier Grill. I go, number one, it's really expensive. And number two, I want to drink it, you know, in the Dordogne or I want to drink it in Burgundy, you know, where it belongs. Because then... The experience, the experience, Then it's man. special. And it's also, it doesn't have all the import duty and tax, <laughs> tax on it as well. So... <laughs> yeah. No, 100%, 100%. It's all about the experience. And, you know, we've been working in our restaurant for so many years and we always, you know, one of the biggest things is how do we exceed always customer expectation and experience because look, let's put, let's be honest. We will always stuff up a dish. We will always overcook something. We will always make a mistake, you know, like, but the experience of, you know, of, of, of the all, you know, dining day, that is what counts the most. And I think, you know, those things that, you know, like count a lot, you know, like, you know, the wine. Which makes a restaurant exceptional. And, you know, my question to you then is why, you know, and you've obviously, you've you've expanded, but you haven't opened 10 restaurants. You haven't taken that Sardinian idea, for example, and gone, you know what, I'm just going to open a, a chain of pasta bars, for example. Why, why haven't you done that? Because I'm sure the opportunity's been there. Many opportunities. I, I never forget when, you know, like, and that could have been a great opportunity, but maybe now I think back and we go, you know what, maybe it's lucky that we didn't take it because if you can't control, we, 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 we like to leave the restaurants and be in it, right? Because otherwise it's really hard. And now we got Aqua Fresca, which is, an, you know, in a, a very casual eatery in the biggest. But you know what? It's like literally, if I drive from home, I get to Aquafresca in three minutes and then to Pilu in another minute. So, you know, it's all, that's why we took that opportunity. We thought, you know what, we can control this, you know. But back then, when Barangaroo was getting built, they begged us, they begged us, and we were flattened. Like we said, you know what, how good is that? They, they come to us, you be the only Italian, we put you in a corner, you can choose. And we just went... You know, like we, 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 with Marilyn going, how are we going to get to Barangaroo, right? In a hurry, every day, being in there. And, and you know, like we, we just couldn't commit because of that. With the, the experience that we give a pillow of fresh water and Barreto, we've got to be in it. You can't, you know, of course you've got to have your days off, but we are in the restaurant 98% of the time of the year we're there, like literally, you know. Yeah, proper family business, isn't it? Yeah, it's a family business. It's a lifestyle. It's a, it's all we do for a living, you know, and that is, that is it. We spend way more time at the restaurant than we, than we do at home. And that's why a lot of people, you know, open restaurants and go, shit, <laughs> you know, this, this is a hard, this is a hard. 
it's not as romantic as it looks when I'm sitting at the table watching Giovanni talking to all the customers that are coming out of the kitchen and, you know, with the chef jacket on and all well, you that. can blame us on MasterChef for that, yeah? We we romanticized it. Everybody thinks it's wonderful. And you go, yeah, there's a certain amount of work that's done behind yeah, the scenes. It, behind <laughs> the scenes. That's what, you know. It's a sexy business on the front door. At the back door, it's a different uh, thing, isn't it? People see the three hours of sitting in a beautiful table overlooking wonderful freshwater beach, drinking red wines and eating red food and go, I can do this. This is amazing. <laughs> Look at Giovanni. He's having the time of his life. Yeah. You know, if he can do it, I'm way smarter. I can do it as well. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's, it's very funny. But you know what I actually did? I put, you know, your business model on a bit of a pedestal. When we, were, when we first started filming MasterChef in 2009, we moved up to Sydney. We were up there for three, four years. And I used to look at that and go, you know, you've probably found one of the most beautiful places, you know, in Australia to open a restaurant. It, it does feel like a home. It used to be a, a home, right? So it, 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 it's got that feeling of, of your place and stamped on it in every, everything that it does. And you live locally, you know, and I just, I'd say to Mandy, I'd go, gee, you know, look at this, you know, amazing. And I've never done that. I've never had that, you know, I've never sorted out in my own restaurant career or my own you know, owning restaurants, it's always been something that it's a very different model. But I certainly admired it. I started getting all wistful and romantic. I remember there's a really, and don't, I don't want anybody to shoot me down, but I think it's South Curl Curl. There's, we used to walk the dogs at North Curl Curl and then go to get a really bad coffee at a little cafe that's in the, the, the surf club there. And I used, to, I used to look, I used to stand there and say to Mandy, I know it cost a few million dollars, but gee, this place would be a great restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it still is a, you know, a decent cafe, but yeah, never been. You know, never great. been that good. And I just thought, gee, anywhere else in the world, that place would be worth millions of dollars, you know? I still go, all the, the surf clubs in Australia got the best spots in the country, right? Freaking dreadful, <laughs> dreadful <laughs> coffee shops. <laughs> and sometimes there isn't even a cafe, which I just go, you know what? Why don't you rent this space to someone? Yeah. They pay you rent. You start making a bit of money because it always broke. Yeah. And you create, you know, some of the best restaurants in the country. But I don't know. Mind you, that's like, your Italian brain. You'd be charging for <laughs> space on the beach if you if it was up to you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. Like the guy that he wanted to open up in Bondi. Remember, and he wanted to uh, section off a section of the beach and charge to put it like get you know, stuffed. <laughs> It's free here. <laughs> you know, the restaurant industry has had a, probably been the hardest hit industry because of COVID, because it's, it's social and it's, you know, it's everything that COVID hasn't given us. What do you think its challenges are and what do you think it's going to look like? I think, you know, for us, I mean, it was really, really difficult, you know, especially one of the, one of the most difficult thing was make sure that we looked after our staff, right? Because, you know, a lot of them, you know, young, young people you know they never have money and they never save any money so we were we wanted to make sure that you know they were always well looked after so you know i think you know we did anything possible we stayed open we did tuck away and then job keeper came on which was amazing you know what the government did they, you know they kept us going but and then we got closed up again probably what it was you know the busiest time of the year in the northern beaches when we had you know the um, outbreak where we had to close like you know probably those two weeks that we cancelled nearly 2,000 bookings, which was crazy. But we've been around with fighters. You know, we've been through, you know, thick and thin, hard and, um, you know, easy and good times and bad times. So we understand what comes with it, you know, like so we can, we can, we can fight and we can come back, you know, we, we, we'll always do. You know, we got a good landlord. We work together. 
all that kind of stuff. You know, and we have an amazing team. So, look, it's been incredibly challenging, but I don't know, man. We're hard to break. <laughs> we are hard to break. You know, so we, we, we never, ever thought for one bit we're going to quit or we're going to give this up or stuff this, you know. We regroup. We, 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 it's hard, you know, because you've got to change and you, it's up and down and, you know, it's crazy when it's not, you know, into a rhythm or a pattern or, you know, but, but I think the restaurant industry, it's a bit like that anyway. Restaurants are always, you know, there's always something happening. So we used to getting a phone call in the morning, you know, where the other day all the fridges were off. And then the day after the cool room, Ooh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Brings back memories, yeah. Yeah, but we, we, you know, you're used to all that. You, you, you know, the more experience you have and the more you, you, know, you get used to all that kind of stuff. So I think COVID, you know, it's been a similar kind of thing, a bigger scale, obviously, where, you know, it was such an up and down and the unknown and what is going to happen and what is happening. And now we're kind of almost getting used to it. So it's getting actually a little bit easier to live with. Yeah, more resilient. Have you had any thoughts, you know, talking to your colleagues and, you know, et cetera, not just in Sydney, but around the country about how the industry might change going forward or, you know, does it force people to be more creative and you, have you heard any great ideas, for example? Look, I think we learned, we've learned, you know, like lots of things, you know, like in terms of even rostering, you know, that we learned that, you know, sometimes maybe it's better if we close an extra day or things like that. Even like, you know, when we did a tuck away, we came up with different ideas you learn from hard times, easy times. Anyone can, can do it. You know, like my, my kids can run the restaurant or my, you know, like any, anyone can do it. But when it's hard, it's when you learn and, you know, um, we definitely learned and you know, speaking to, it's a great community, you know, the, the, the you know, the, uh, hospitality industry, you know, you have some great people that you can talk to, like even interstate or, you know, Australia wide, everyone is amazing. So, you know, you learn. And I think what is going to happen though, uh, Gary, is that, look, and I hope it, it doesn't have, you know, a massive impact. I think when JobKeeper finishes, it's going to be hard for a lot of guys that, you know, they're not maybe as experienced as we are or as, you know, as gear up as we are, you know, I think it's going to, and, you know, in, in all honesty, I think, you know, there was quite an abundance of, you know, restaurants and cafes and maybe even too many, you know, like in freshwater alone, there is 17 places where you can buy a coffee and it's only a tiny little suburb. So I think it's going to tidy up. I think someone said it's like an overgrown forest, you know, I think. Needs thinning a little bit. It's a bit of trimming, you know, so I think that's what is going to happen. Hopefully it won't be too drastic, but. As soon as, you know, probably 2021 is going to be much the same in terms of travel, but, you know, when, when you hop on the plane, where are you going? I think I know the answer, but what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> we are postponed. We postponed our cooking tour to Puglia twice, right? So we are aiming for 2022 to take a group to Puglia, which Alessandro and I discovered, you know, a few years back, and uh, we had an amazing itinerary. Obviously, everything got put on hold, but I think that will be um, – the first trip. And then I got to make it up because, you know, my 50th last year, we were going to go all over Italy, you know, with Maryland's parents and then, you know, our kids and all that, and you know, nothing happened. So I think there is a bit of a uh, bit of that yeah. bit of payback. See, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And you have to tell me, cause I was telling Dave, the producer that I can't even remember when it was, but you and Alessandro were on a, it looked like a boardwalk in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. You're riding your bicycles. Where was that? Lake Garda, Lake Garda. Oh, it was Lake Garda. Yeah. They got now, eventually, oh, look, when it's finished, it's going to be the longest cycle path in the world. It goes 180 k 
all around the lake. And the bit that you saw us cycling, it was, you know, the beginning of it. It's, it was amazing. You got the, you know, like the lake underneath and, you know, we, we went around because Alessandro is from there. So we yeah. did a tour around there and it was super good. Yeah. Unbelievable. Have I ate so much cheese, <laughs> Palejo and Gorgonzola in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Up those mountains. So it was, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Sounds brilliant. Oh, well, we cross our fingers that uh, you get that trip to Puglia and and the the trip around Italy. You deserve it. You've worked hard and still run one of the rest, best restaurants in Australia and one of the, the best places. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Good chat. Loved it. Yeah, no, great to be here and thanks for having me, man. It was a real pleasure. To pleasure. Be Hopefully I'll see you this. soon. <laughs> okay, mate. Thanks, Giovanni. Ciao. So now it's time for my tips and tricks. And Giovanni made me think that from an island like Sardinia, of course, seafood is really important. We're an island. We're just a bit bigger, but our seafood is beautiful. And often people tell me they really struggle cooking seafood at home. Maybe it's the smell. Maybe they don't have a good pan and everything sticks. It just makes it troublesome. So this is what I think. If you go to the market and you buy fish, prepare it when you get home. Put it in the fridge and then you distance yourself from the smell and the preparation, which I know, for example, puts my wife off enormously. Nothing worse than peeling prawns and then cooking them, eating the prawns, and you can smell that kind of raw shelly prawn on your fingers. Not nice. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you don't have a great pan, even if you cut out a little square of baking paper, sounds weird, but put it into the pan, get it hot, drizzle a little bit of oil, and put the skin side down of the fish first onto that paper. It will never stick the paper actually won't burn. So it allows you to crisp up the skin, turn it over, season it beautifully. You can add a little bit of maybe crushed fennel or a little bit of chili, and then you can slide the paper out, continue to cook it. You can even put a little knob of butter in, squeeze of lemon juice, baste the fish, take it out. It tastes delicious. In fact, I'm hungry. Might have that for lunch. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.